0: The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.
1: MC Laubscher, who's the host of Cashflow Ninja, which happens to be one of my favorite podcasts. I've learned so much from the podcast about how the ultra wealthy invest and how they think about investments. And um, all these. Um, just she goes into these amazing cashflow niches, which are just different ways to invest and to protect and grow your wealth. So I'm very excited to have him on the show. Thanks for coming on MC. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start with, um, could you give us a little bit more about your background and then uh, maybe touch on your first milestone in real estate?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm originally from South Africa. So I came to the US in around 2001. Time actually flies when you're having fun, right? Uh, (laughs) A backpack, a suitcase, 500 bucks, a sense of humor and a sense of adventure and traveled quite a bit. And I was just blown away about the incredible opportunity that existed in the United States. Uh, for upward mobility. That's why you have so many rag, rags to riches stories. Um, it's just quite incredible. Uh, the US is like, unlike any other place that, that I've been, and I was fortunate enough to travel to a couple of places before I ended up here. Um, that's why immigrants, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there's someone in our community that just forwarded me something about all these um, uh, record number of billionaires, I guess, are all immigrants. Uh, obviously led by Elon Musk, which is also from South Africa. But it was very interesting. And I I looked at that and I'm like, I'm not surprised at all because immigrants that come here, they look at this uh, around in the US and they can't believe the opportunity that's here, um, the upward mobility that's available. And they look at most Americans like, you won the lottery. You're born here. You're born in the USA. You're, you literally won the lottery. Um, so, yeah, so I started... Um, I played in a, a sports league here up until 2007. But as I as I was traveling around the country, um, I uh, you know people get and do different things. You know, in sports teams when they travel, some people play video games. I was the guy reading history and economic books, and then came across the book that my mom shared with me of Rich Dad Poor Dad of Robert Kiyosaki. Completely blew my mind. I was uh, just blown away about this. Uh, incredible different way to look at wealth building. And I took action. Like within the first six months, I bought my first real estate property. Um, It was a sort of like a condominium kind of townhome in in South Africa in this one beach town, which was relatively still not that well-known at that stage. Um, But I saw a lot of growth coming in that area because they were developing a new highway from Cape Town to that area. Um, but eventually, I, I I bought it. We put tenants in the, in the in the in the in the in the property. They paid rent, and then after rent was paid and all the expenses were paid with it, I'm like, "There's money left over. This is quite incredible. Is this what is cash flow? Is are we talking about this? Is this the concept of cash flow? So then, it, I mean, huge light bulb moment for me, and it turned into essentially how many times can I do this? This is incredible. How many times can I? buy a similar property like this that's going to produce the same results. So that was my first win in the investment world. Um, That was my first win in real estate. My first real estate milestone completely changed my life because of that light bulb moment, which led to two similar light bulb moments on my journey where, you know, the second part of it was I, 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 I figured out the cash flow part of real estate. Then I was, was looking at how do I position and allocate capital effectively and efficiently within my own personal business and investing economy so that my money's doing more things uh, for me to help speed up my results. And I came across the banking system. And I realized that banks have really figured out this game, this game of capital and wealth. One of the creators, right, of, of, of the game. And I studied what banks were doing and essentially implemented and executed the same principles of the banking system into my own personal business and investing economy. So I became my own banker. And then, you know, I started right at the bottom when it comes to real estate. Um, I was, as I mentioned, playing in a sports league in the US. And uh, I couldn't hold a steady job because I was traveling all the time, essentially, playing sports in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. Um so I had a friend that his family had a very large real estate portfolio on the north side of the city of Chicago so I started working for him literally picking up trash on one of his multi-family buildings um eventually that which led me to like doing maintenance painting apartments helping with apartment turnovers running construction crews to eventually doing property management managing over a 1000 units uh and then um essentially uh, became part of his, uh, part of his uh, acquisition team. And I was looking for properties for him to buy. And I remember going off to this one real estate investor quite a bit, because I knew he had a large portfolio of properties that he wanted to sell. But I just couldn't get a meeting with him. One morning, I uh, came into the office about 7.30. And uh, that investor walked out of my friend's partner, the broker's office, and just sold all of his properties to them. And I realized, whoa, wait a second. What just happened here? There's something else going on here. There's a different game. Uh, What's the lesson? And the lesson was that there's different levels in this investing game, just like there was in sports. High school ball, college ball, pro ball. And these are cash flow ninjas playing at the highest level. And these cash flow ninjas, essentially, they dominate the market that they're in. You know, there was no one in on the north side of the city of Chicago in multifamily that that wasn't going to talk to those guys first before selling a property or buying a property because they know if they wanted to sell it, those guys would probably buy it cash uh, and flip it to another investor who that's what the type of property that they're looking for or they're going to hold on to it um, and, and as part of their own portfolio. And I realized that, man, there's no way to compete with these guys. So then it turned into, how can I partner with Cashflow Ninjas? How can I partner with them instead of competing? Which, um, you know, those three big light bulb moments as I've implemented and executed and, 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 and shaped me as an investor that I am today. But, um, you know, where I am today, I, I am the uh, founder of, um, and host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast. Cashflow Ninja started as a podcast in 2016. It's now a full-blown educational company. It just started with having interesting conversations around cashflow investing, cashflow investments, cashflow niches, and cashflow management. And then I also have two other companies. I have a company called Producers Wealth, where we help. Uh, people in, in all of the United States implement and execute the infinite banking concept strategy. We help them create their own banking system using insurance products, and then we also have a company uh, called Producers Capital Partners, where we raise capital for large um, commercial, multifamily uh, projects, and also uh, resorts and other different, um, yeah, cash flow, cash flow investments.
1: Awesome. Well, that's an amazing story. And uh, I love, we always love the rich dad, poor dad, light bulb moment. And um, if anyone hasn't read that again, look, at we have another guest who recommends it. I think we're on a streak of, of five in a row. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's amazing. So now that you've had this, you know, light bulb moment, this 20 years of, of understanding what the flow ninjas do differently what do they do differently? And I know you have this really succinct way of breaking it down into a stable of horses. So can you go into that that concept?
0: Yeah, they do the complete opposite of everyone else. Um, Cashflow and Ninjas do the complete opposite of everyone else. Um, 99% of the population is told to just basically go to work, go to to school, get good grades, get a good job, save money in a diversified portfolio, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds and hopefully at the end of their working life there's enough money in those vehicles uh, that they can retire from and turn it into income and cash flow which is kind of weird right you play the accumulation game for like 30 to 40 years and then you want to turn it into cash flow why not start with cash flow from the beginning that's what cash flow ninjas do they go right from cash flow from the beginning so they do the complete opposite where folks uh, the 99% of folks just focus on the accumulation game cash flow and just focus on cash flow right away, income streams. Um, and they start usually by developing businesses, because businesses helps them buy more cash flow investments, such as real estate. Um, but to your point, you mentioned the stable of horses. We're living in a very different time right now. Very different time. Anybody that is looking around. Uh, Probably lost three years. I figured out that things are a little bit different in the world than what they used to be. Um, There are massive, massive changes occurring and happening daily, weekly. Um, They're going to continue, by the way, and changes are just going to get much quicker. There's going to be a ton of disruption. There's going to be a ton of, um, you know, uh, chaos in, in, in all areas of our life. Um, and at the root cause of this, you know, people can point fingers at many different things, but we're going through a massive, massive change of uh, just of the human race, all of us on the spinning ball of dirt together, as I always, always like to refer to Earth. There's a, there's a fourth industrial revolution happening, which is technology, right? Every single time massive technology developments have happened, whether it be uh, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, robotics, the Internet of Things, 5G, all of these things are happening right now. Every single time we've had massive changes in technology, there has been massive stress placed upon society. and it manifests itself in different ways, usually politically, right? Think of all the revolutions that, that there've been. If you're going from the agricultural age, where people used to work the land and farms, to eventually moving towards into the industrial age, where it, now it became more like, oh, the steam locomotive was discovered, and now we can connect towns and cities because of trains. And now all of a sudden, you know in the next phase, we can organize more effectively and efficiently how we work in factories. And now while factories have to be in town, so people instead of living in the land were moving towards towns and cities. Um, So there, there were massive changes in society, because of the technology, the same thing is happening now. And we went completely digital in 2020. You know, it's interesting, most people say, you know, we, um, what happened, we're all of a sudden now virtual, I'm like, I started a virtual company in 2014, 2015. My first uh, like, uh, financial services firms, completely virtual, has been from day one because I looked at this and said, This is a trend that I'm going to position my company and my businesses for because this is how we will do business 10 years from now, 10 to 15 years. We're not going to be in person all the time um, because we could do things much quicker be much more efficient and effective and have businesses that are much more scalable. If we could do it all digital and online and do consulting online. So just an example, but anyway, so we've all these things going on. So how do you position and allocate capital in a world that is experiencing change? We've experienced them before, not as quickly and as rapidly. And, um, how do we position capital in, uh, and essentially, at a time period where we, uh, we, we've come to the end of certain systems, you know, it gets, uh, and that's a completely different conversation, but the world monetary system is about to change or in the process of changing. You know, we have all these different systems that are in the process of resetting. You know, systems and, and, and structures which people have taken for granted their entire lives are about to reset and change in many different ways. So I came up with this concept that I learned from a friend of mine, Francis Hunt, fellow South African, too, that teaches the stable of horses approach to things, which means that you cannot put all of your eggs in one basket when it comes to capital allocation. And I don't even talk about investments yet. I just talk about allocating capital after you've made it in the capacity of an employee or a business owner or an investor. Where do you put it? Well, the first area is cash. And cash is your workhorse, essentially. Uh, Your horse and buggy. That's the horse that you need every day to go places. So you still need cash. And by the way, at the time of recording, I've been talking about cash for quite a while, uh, why you need cash and why cash is so important. And everybody, they just rolled their eyes at me and said, you know, all this inflation, cash is trash, we're losing buying power. And I said, I understand all of that. By the way, it makes me nauseous to hold cash, but you need cash. If they had cash, now would be a great time to go shopping. You know, people (laughs) fight fight over each other on Black Friday over big screen TVs, because it's on sale or other things that they don't need. But when investments go on sale, everybody gets afraid. And they don't do anything about it. So anyway, so cash is the first horse. That's your workhorse, your horse and buggy. Then you need a a, a different horse for a different scenario. And that's where gold and silver comes in. Now, gold and silver, I look at wealth insurance. And gold and silver is your war horse. When the bullets start flying, you want a horse that can put down its head, And just keep trucking and keep moving forward in a very hostile environment. That's your war horse. You need gold and silver. It's your wealth insurance. And especially when when you have global monetary and financial systems that are changing, gold and silver is insurance against that because it's been money for centuries. Then the third horse is the fastest horse, the race horse, the show pony. The show pony is is essentially uh, what I refer to as Bitcoin, and Bitcoin has a lot of great characteristics. And I we have a, had a huge pullback on Bitcoin because there's a massive scam in the crypto space. That is a good thing. That scams get flushed out. They should be flushed out completely. And I, you know, there's a handful of good coins, maybe of projects. Uh, there's probably less than one percent good projects. The rest of them are all scams or kind of like a copy of a different project, they all should be flushed out. So this will take a, pr- a process. And Bitcoin is still a very, very small market, which is very volatile because it's so small that the fundamentals are actually getting stronger, even though the price is declining um, at, at the time of recording. So that's your fastest horse in the race, your race horse, your show pony, very volatile. Now, if you have those three horses in your stable, you know, kind of taking the Ray Dalio portfolio approach to it from ca- just on capital positioning, you know, cash you're going to need in a deflationary period, or uncertain times, or when there's massive corrections, uh, which we've already lived through those some of the massive corrections in the financial markets and in the crypto markets, um, coming to the real estate market soon. Um, gold and silver is there as insurance, wealth insurance, the war horse. It's just there. It's been money for centuries. It'll continue to be money for centuries. And then Bitcoin is your show pony, your racehorse, where essentially as adoption increases, there's going to be massive growth opportunities there. And it has utility because you can transfer a large sum of money from one person to another without an intermediary. There's also a limited supply. So it ha- essentially... Uh, uh is a hedge against uh against inflation so your position in those three areas one area takes a hit for like, let's just say in the latest one the show pony gets shot in the leg and goes down you still have cash and gold and silver so again how much you allocate to that is different from every single investor and by the way this is by no means financial advice it's just how we look how I look at the world and the things that i'm doing personally. Um, and that's just from a capital positioning standpoint and allocation standpoint and then of course you know investments are a completely different ball game um you know and we can talk about that too but that you know you should have some diversification you know in things that pay you cash flow also on a on a on a monthly and an annual basis
1: right so that's capital allocation and that's like very Great summary that you gave us. I really appreciate that. And um, I'm wondering how this kind of relates to the, the rest of the picture in terms of investing. And now this is keeping your capital, making sure you don't get wiped out by something that just comes around in the market. But then how do we get it to, to move forward? And, uh, you know, I guess from an investment standpoint.
0: Yeah. So the big framework, and I love frameworks because anybody can use a framework and apply it to what they're doing, regardless of where you are in your journey. Um and personal finance, by definition, is personal. So everybody's got a different situation. But essentially the framework that I use from studying, you know the ultra wealthy and interviewing over 800 people over the past six years is you make your money somehow, whether it be in the capacity of an employee, whether it be in the capacity of a business owner or investor, then you have to position it somewhere. Put it somewhere, place it, that's capital allocation. Then you have to deploy it into things that make you more money, whether it be businesses or real estate and so forth, cash flow investments. Then there's also a growth bucket. And then you have to protect everything, put a wall around everything that you've produced and created and deployed. And that wall should include tax strategy, asset protection, and estate planning. So, to the investment side, you know. If you are an entrepreneur and that's where everybody's starting and you're starting a business, there's no better place to invest your money in either yourself or your business. There's no, there's just no other investment that will ever give you a multiple on the return that you would get by investing in yourself, your education, your financial education and your, and your personal development and your business. Look at, you know, Look at some of the top folks that are out there. Where do they invest in? I mean, like I mentioned Elon Musk uh, from from uh, originally from South Africa. What does Elon do? Elon invests in Elon's dreams, right? Elon doesn't have a stock portfolio that is diversified with stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Uh, Elon doesn't have a 401k or an IRA. Elon invests in Elon. That's why he's so confident. <laughs> and Elon invests in the businesses of Elon. You know, most people with these exited PayPal, which was close to $200 million, would have basically just put that somewhere and let it simmer, let it just kick off some some very low risk, minimal returns and sit on a beach somewhere and drink a Mai Tai, not Elon. Elon took that capital and used, used that as the seed capital to fund more of Elon's dreams, which is Tesla, which is SpaceX, which is the boring company in Neuralink. So he, continually, he continues to invest in his own businesses because there is no other uh, investment that can give him that multiple. So if you're young, you're just starting out. Even if you're working somewhere, start a side hustle, grow that side hustle to eventually that you can eventually quit your full-time job and manage and do your own, just do your own business, run your own business. And that business, by the way, becomes the catalyst to Purchase you other cash-flowing assets such as real estate. Now there is a time to diversify outside of your business, and that's essentially what Elon does. He just does it in a different way. I mean, what is it the uh, what is the city that he just built in Texas? To he built like some yeah (laughs) some yeah some manufacturing city essentially. Um, He owns the real estate, same thing that he had in California. So anyway. That's a real estate play, essentially, for him. The same way that, Ma- that McDonald's uh, franchises all around the place is a real estate play. The business buys the real estate. Um, and, and essentially, if you just have a, a business that you're running, use the capital that you generated in your business to continue to grow your business. And then when, when your business continues to expand now it is, is, it and can continue to grow, then you're looking for ways to invest outside of it, and then you use the capital you're generating there to, to buy real estate and other cash flow uh, investments. So, and right now, especially during the time that we live in, nobody knows what's going to happen in the next five years if they tell you, they nobody knows. <laughs> Run the other way. Nobody knows what's going to happen. It's very unpredictable. Um, you know, billionaires right now, they're thinking too, like, what am I missing? What am I missing that's going to come and bite me? So how do you get around that? Well, you have to you you have to find different income streams, right? And you can have a business with like four or five different income streams. One big income, one big flow, one big income stream, and then add different uh, cash flow income streams to that business, so that if one of those streams or two or three go away, you still have other streams. If you have investments. I would highly encourage you from even cash flow investments to look at different ways to diversify yourself, whether it be in real estate. You know, single family could get hit, but if you had multifamily or at cell storage and maybe mobile home parks, those might not get hit. You know, if two or three of them get hit, you still have some diversification in other uh, verticals. So that's what I would encourage from from an investment standpoint and how to go about it, especially if you're starting out. If you're starting out, you know, I always get the question, MC, I have $10,000, what should I do? Well, the first thing is don't tell anybody about it. And the second thing is invest that $10,000 in you so that you can become a person of value that could solve problems in the marketplace, because that's what a business is. I know everybody says, I want to start a business. What business should I start? It's like, well, what problems do you want to solve? And how are you going to solve those problems? You're only going to be able to do that if you have skills and then you acquire those skills by investing in yourself. So that's where I would start, you know, if I had $10,000, and then I would start a business, even if I'm working for someone else at the time, as a side hustle, you know, um, and grow that side hustle into eventually your main business and then add flows to that side hustle, uh, which is now your business. And then I would look at investing in, in, in avenues outside of it.
1: Awesome. That's a that's a good plan. That's that's the plan that we're all going to follow. <laughs> and so I want to talk a little bit about some of the other things you're an expert in that definitely fall into this a lot, but specifically infinite banking and that whole concept, because you kind of have the capital allocation strategy and like, you know, positioning your, I guess your, your wealth in, I guess, a, a safe invest or not an investment, but in a safe place from a asset protection. And tax perspective, and then you can collateralize and deploy it um, as, as effectively as as you can. So I kind of want to talk about how, you know, that kind of bridge between both of these things you've been talking about.
0: Yeah, so infinite banking, essentially, there's a couple of different ways to position capital, right? And we talked about the stable of horses. Now, there's a there's a way to look at how to position capital so that you can access that capital and have that capital, that one pool do many different things simultaneously for you. So I mentioned cash. So where do you keep cash? Most people will keep it in a bank. What's a bank doing for you? Why would you keep your money in a bank? They're not paying you anything. And by the way, they're playing games with your money, leveraging your money. So um, through the infinite banking concept strategy, you can position money in an overfunded whole life policy with a mutual insurance company, a dividend paying whole life insurance policy. And this is an insurance policy structured very, very specifically for high cash value. So it's this is not Dave Ramsey's policy, by the way. I agree with ninety nine percent of of Dave's criticism of, of how most whole life pol- whole life policies are sold to the public. This is how the rich buy life insurance. This is what they do in family offices. So you would have a. a a policy not just structured for the death benefit. Most people think life insurance. Somebody has to die in order for someone else to benefit. That's not the case. You can actually set up a policy where you have a death benefit, but you um, but you actually build cash value in a policy. And usually, you would have 70 to 80 percent of your premiums year one going straight to the savings part of that policy. So you put in $10,000, you should have around seven to eight thousand dollars in your policy that you can set up a credit line uh, with, as you would the same way with a HELOC, set up a credit line to tap into the equity of a home. You could set that up with a life insurance contract. And the reason why you do it is, the money that you put inside of those policy, this, these policies are guaranteed. It's guaranteed to grow. It receives dividends. And By the way, the growth and the dividends are tax free. Um, the death benefit is tax free. It's private so it's some sort of asset protection in most states in the United States. and you can access the money tax free. So if you think about it from a cash standpoint, you could essentially you could essentially position capital into something with all these guarantees and tax free growth, access it tax free um, and leverage it you know in, to invest into other assets such as real estate, for example. So it's a very powerful place to keep cash. It's like the secret capital account, the savings account of the ultra wealthy, which is not so secret at all. Um, It's just most people don't know about it. So it's a great place to park cash. You still need cash, regardless of all the anti-cash rhetoric that you've heard over the past two to three years. Um, Trust me, a lot of people wish they have cash right now. Um, and they're going to wish that they have cash, you know, in the coming six months, and in, in in the coming twelve months. So where do you keep it? Where it's outside of the bank? I wouldn't keep a large sums uh, amount of money in in bank accounts right now. Um, everything is fragile. Everything is 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 uncertain. So where do you keep it? Well, you keep it in a mutual insurance company's life insurance policy that's been around since 1847, that have gone through civil wars and world wars and. You know, economic recessions, depressions, crashes, and so forth, global monetary changes. They've seen several of those, and they've weathered the storms. You know, as an investor, here's a, a golden nugget that I've learned. One of the biggest things is counter, like counterparty risk. You know, yes, my money is in this, but what's the counterparty risk? And counterparty risk is essentially, we live in a world of contracts, you know, most most of um, most of especially the Western democracies around the world, we contract law is like one of the foundational elements of our society. You know, private property and contracts. So contracts usually have w- w- uh, two, one or two more parties, right? Two or more. So you are, you are a party. There's another party. You have a contract between each other, and one party has to do something, and the other party has to do something in order for the contract to uh, to be valid and to function. But what if the one party doesn't fulfill their obligations on their contract? That's what I call counterparty risk because now all of a sudden, the contract's essentially null and void, right? So yeah, you can have your money in a bank, but if you looked at the really, really fine print, which nobody can almost read when you open your bank account, um, they can essentially, you've become an unsecured creditor to the bank by putting your capital in the bank, it's not your money; it's their money. They they just owe you that money. So um, you want to be very, very careful of counterparty risk in transactions that you go into, especially now. Um, and you want to look at, from a risk management standpoint, how parties have behaved in the past when you try when you go into business with people. Here's a good way to judge their character or how they will behave in the future. What have they done in the past and how have they behaved in the past? And the probability, because investing is a probability game, right? The probability of having similar results or similar behaviors than what they have in the past is very, very high. The same thing with institutions, the same thing with operators, if you're vetting them, or people that you invest with or partners, So when you look at where you put your cash with this infinite banking concept strategy with life insurance companies, if I look at it from a counterparty risk standpoint, the probability of my capital and my contracts being honored, my capital being guaranteed and in a quote unquote safe place is very, very high. And the probability of my contract being honored is very, very high if I looked at their past behavior. So that's how we use it. We use life insurance as a vehicle to save in. It's a savings vehicle to park cash because we can essentially put the cash value up as collateral so that we can use and invest in other areas.
1: Yeah, I love your point about counterparty risk because I'm thinking, um, I think I've heard you say this on the podcast before. But um, if you shorted the market with Lehman Brothers back in 2008, you know you could have been completely right and you would have made a lot of money with when the market dropped. But the people who are guaranteeing are the people who are gonna pay you the money when when it happened, if they go under, you're you're equally as screwed as if you you know levered, you bought a bunch of. You're, you know, put all your money in the market, levered it up, and lost your money that way. It's um, so that's a really good point. But uh, getting back to the infinite banking concept, so uh, just to summarize it, you, you know, contribute monthly to a insurance policy that yep, it becomes it's then it's filling up with cash, and as as you're filling it up with cash, the bank is also giving you a four percent dividend. Let's say a, a dividend, so it's growing even more. If something unfortunate were to happen to you, you would get maybe a multiple of what was there. So maybe like 10 times what you have saved up so far. And while you're accumulating this this cash value, it's very safe and banks are willing to, you know, use it as collateral if you were to get a loan because they know that it's cash and they know that it's growing and they know that it's real. I mean, it's like, it's it's not going anywhere. So you can go, you can leverage up to 90% is what I've heard. And then put that money that you borrow you technically you're borrowing it from yourself, but it's not actually borrowing it from yourself because it's in an insurance policy that you're not necessarily the owner of, technically, right? And then you can yep. put that into real estate and make your money here. So you're making money in two different places. One is more savings. One is more investing. My question, the part that really is mind blowing to me is how is this how is how is this tax free? Where where like what allows this to be a tax free vehicle?
0: So insurance essentially is the bedrock of societies. You know, if you look at it, um, it, I mean, essentially provides liquidity in small communities. If there is catastrophic events, any type of insurance, whether it's property and casualty, you know, whether it is uh, life insurance and so forth. So life insurance policies Uh, positioning cash in these policies are tax, the growth in there is tax-free. Now, how you can access it is through policy loans, through establishing a line of credit, which means you're borrowing money. You're not accessing and tapping into the money. So let's just say, hypothetically, you have $200,000 cash value in your policy and you borrow 100,000 through a policy loan. You still have $200,000 in your policy. Because technically, you never tapped into, you didn't draw money like you would out of a savings account, out of your policy. You took a loan, a policy loan using that $100,000 as collateral. So it's a loan. And on loans, there's no taxes pay. You know, bringing Elon back into the conversation, how he wanted to finance his, uh, his, his Twitter deal is Elon would place his Tesla shares as collateral to get a loan to buy Twitter. Now, why wouldn't Elon just sell it? And I saw that there were reports in the news that he was going to sell Tesla shares that he's not going to do that. Um, he's too smart and his team's too smart. They just don't understand quite the strategy. So Elon would place that as collateral. He would get a loan. And by the way, that's asset-based lending. So ABL loans. So, uh, I mean, he, he would have gotten that under a percent probably. He's Elon. He's better banking relations than any of us with investment banks so probably less than that. So he essentially would get free money tax-free to then go and buy Twitter, where if he had sold these Tesla shares, then that's a taxable event. Yeah. Then he would pay taxes on that. And then he would buy uh, Twitter. So with life insurance, kind of same thing. You don't uh, directly pull the cash out. You use a loan to access the funds and that's why it's tax-free. It's the same thing with you could use your gold and silver, and art as collateral for a loan. Um, You get up to 50% of the value of your gold, silver, and art. And again, you don't pay taxes on it because it's a loan. The same thing with uh, a HELOC. When you establish a home equity line of credit to tap into the equity of a property, you don't pay taxes on the the HELOC because it's a loan. Same with business credit line, a business loan where you place the assets of the business as collateral. Um, a lot of folks, too, that got their fingers burned, did the same thing with Bitcoin, where they place Bitcoin as collateral. And then you can borrow up to 50% of the value of your Bitcoin to then go buy real estate. Again, uh, you need to you need to know what you're doing to do those strategies because there's margin calls if markets turn against you. If you were one of the unlucky fellas or ladies that... Um, You know, took a collateralized Bitcoin loan at like 65K and now it's under 30. Well, you would have had a margin call, which means you were to add to collateral, although it would sell off some of your Bitcoin, which would result in a taxable event and you losing your coins to fix the loan. You know, the same thing with the the example that I shared with Elon, uh, with he's placing his Tesla shares as collateral you need to know what you do, you know, don't go run out and try to do this. You know, uh, it's almost like a movie. Don't try this at home kids Um, uh, or, or infomercial because Elon knows what he's doing and he's got professionals on his team that understand how to manage that margin, how to manage that collateral. So he doesn't run into any, uh, into any issues.
1: Right. And I guess with the uh, infinite baking concept, the collateral is not going to plummet like Tesla shares or um, Bitcoin. It's a lot more stable. And that's why you can, you know, lend while you can collateralize up to 90% almost tap the entire cash value. And so just before we hit the lightning round, I want to address anyone who's like, thinks that might be too good to be true. How is this possible? Why have I never heard of this? You know, what are some of these objections that um, people are probably thinking right now? I'd love to, to address that.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it's actually it's funny that you say that because people are like that's too good to be true. Uh, what do you mean by good? Have you looked? Have you sat on the other side of the insurance company, uh, on on their side of the table? Um, and if you think about it, you know Warren Buffett even said this. He goes, "Wow, I be I was first a hedge fund guy, thought that was the end all and be all. He's like, then I saw the banking system and banks, and he's like, and then I became." big into the banking banking world. He's like, and then I discovered insurance companies. He's like, and I haven't looked back. I mean, that's why Geico is one of his biggest, biggest holdings. He loves insurance companies. So why does Warren Buffett love insurance companies? Think about how insurance companies operate. It's just math. It's math and actual science. Um, so essentially, what insurance companies do is they underwrite people, you know, let's just say a life insurance company. A life insurance company, if they underwrite a hundred people, they know in that hundred people, how many people will die within the next five to ten years? How many people will will die? You know, fifty years from now, and how many people would will live another thirty to forty years? Um, and they would probably be off with a fraction. That's how good they are. The science is ridiculous. I mean. You can apply this across the board. Think property and casualty, car insurance. They could tell you in a zip code how many car accidents there will be, how many fender benders, how many cars will be totaled, and they can tell you what the ages of those drivers will be, and they'll be off by a fraction. That's how good they are. So there's a science behind all of this. So they're already very profitable when they underwrite a person for insurance, whether it be property and casualty, whether it be life insurance. There's a margin built already in that. Then think about it this way. And this is where Buffett, he just had a mind-blown event when he saw this. Wait a minute. So I get to collect all these premiums up front, insurance premiums, and then I get to invest those premiums. And if I manage my float correctly of whether the the, the, the payouts that I do and the premiums that I collect... It's a no-brainer because I collect all these premiums, invest them. I manage my float correctly. And now I have all these other investments that's making me money on the back end, which everybody that with a business know that the professionals make their money on the back end of the business, not on the front end. It's the upsell usually or even an investment operation. So they're making huge profits on the back end of this. Um, and when you have a whole life policy with a mutual insurance company, you then get to now access ca- your cash value through a credit line. Well, think about it on the life insurance company side; they're covered twice, not once. Twice you have a death benefit, which they know at some stage none of us are getting out of, out here alive. Right? At at, <laughs> at some stage, we're all going to leave this spinning ball of dirt in this energy form that we, we're we're at. So they know that there will be paid out there, and then you you placed. The savings, your capital in cash value up as collateral. So they're covered twice. And they're extremely profitable through their underwriting, managing their float, which is their pool of capital, which premiums collected versus payouts. And then they can invest uh, the difference between that and other investments that appreciate in value and deliver profits for them. insurance That's why these companies have been around since the mid-1800s. They're very profitable. And I'm talking about mutual insurance companies. These are not stock companies listed on stock exchanges. They will be in trouble again, by the way, most of them in this financial crisis that's developing now, um, because they have to manage their companies on behalf of shareholders, which is stockholders. So they have to make risky bets to increase the value of their stock price. Mutual insurance companies are not listed on the stock exchanges. They manage their company on behalf of the policyholders, which is us.
1: Awesome. And the, the one thing that I, I always think about with life insurance is that you, unfortunately, are not diversified across millions of people's lives. Y- y- yeah, you're probably not going to die prematurely. You're probably going to, you know, there's, a, there's an average. But the thing is, the, the risk is higher because you only have one, you know, you only have one life. And obviously, we know if, you, if you're not alive, you can't do any of this cool stuff or have fun or, or whatever. So it's, um, I guess it's a mutual beneficial exchange and probably why I've gone so long. But yeah, I mean, this is super exciting. And um, it's the last question would be as a young person, like how could this make sense for me?
0: Yeah, I actually got my first uh, policy and I've been doing this for over a decade. When I didn't, wasn't married, I didn't have any kids. So what young people can do is you can lock in really low insurance rights Um, And there's different strategies too, right? Think about it this way. If you're young, if you're just in your 20s and starting out, you have a lot of time, but you don't have a lot of money and resources yet. So you can accumulate it along the way in this vehicle. I mean, I've seen some of the policies that one of my companies have structured for 20 year olds. It's crazy how quickly this builds up for them because they're so young and insurance costs are low that you can lock in. Um, if you're in your thirties and forties, you have a higher income, you have a little bit more resources. There's some strategies for that. And a lot of our, um, business in that company of mine produces wealth that we do these days are done between ages of 55 and 70 in life insurance. And people would say, how is that possible? Well, because there's high incomes and a lot of resources and a lot of liquidity. And when people are 55 to 70 years old, what happens in that age bracket? I didn't know this. I had to study this because it was happening in my company. I didn't really market towards 55 to 70-year-olds, but there's a lot of liquidity events. There's parents passing away. There's businesses that are being sold. There's real estate being sold. Where And what infinite banking, uh, the strategy addresses is, where do you put your cash? Where do you put it? So, as a young person, too, where do you put it? Are you going to put it in index funds? Well, how are you going to pay for things when you're out and about, or, or you have an emergency, so you have to sell off stuff? Are you going to put it in the bank that's not paying you anything and doing anything for you besides, I guess, a debit card and online bill pay? Or are you going to put it in a place that actually benefits you, where you get to reap the benefits of all the many different things that uh, that you that that, that this policy offers.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, I think we can leave it on that and have people uh, check out your podcast and check out your um, other resources to see how this could work for them and maybe go further down this rabbit hole. But uh, before we go, are you ready for the lightning round? Absolutely, let's do it. All right. So if you have any superpower, what would you choose?
0: If I had any superpower, what would I choose? To see the future. The crystal ball business is tough. It's a really tough racket. So I'd like to make that business easy.
1: Yeah, that would be awesome. I think that would have a lot of uh, good implications. Um, So what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most?
0: Well, I'd mentioned Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but one of the the best books for understanding the global monetary and financial system is The Creature from Jekyll Island by Mr. G. Edward Griffin. It's an incredible read. um, And it was written in the 90s. And it's eerie how everything that was written in that book is now coming to fruition of where we are at. So, um, most people uh, want money; they want to invest, and they want to become wealthy. Which, obviously, uh, a lot of people think money when they think wealthy, but they don't know what money is, how money works, how the, how, how the global monetary system works and how the global financial system works, that'll book, that book will give you an insight of exactly how it does. It's important to understand what it is, if that's going to be a goal of accumulating more of it.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So what motivates you to continue every day?
0: Um, just my, my purpose, living in my purpose. I'm, uh, you know, fortunately in a position where I get to do things because I want to do them and I don't need to do them. So um, one of the reasons uh, why I lo- still love doing my, my podcast at Cashflow Ninja and um, creating all the tools and resources and programs and books is, um, it's something that I'm passionate about and it's in my purpose. So um, that's what motivates me. Um, we're trying to help as many people as we can be on the right side of this, what I believe to be the greatest wealth transfer in human history. Um, so we're trying to help as many people out there position themselves their families, their businesses, and their investments to be on the right side of this.
1: Awesome. So what advice would you give to someone who has to follow in your footsteps?
0: Um, you know, seek out, seek out true, and, uh, true teachers, people that eat their own cooking, practice what they preach. There's usually footprints in the sand, a blueprint that you can, that you can follow. Find someone that has done already what you're trying to do. And then, you know, follow, follow their, follow their blueprint.
1: Awesome. And so last, I put you on the spot, I want to give you a chance for revenge. So feel free to ask me any question you want to know about me.
0: Oh, that's good. Flipping, flipping the tables. What, what is, one are, um, what is probably one of the most uh, interesting things that you've learned by interviewing folks on your show?
1: Hmm. I, I feel like, hmm, let me think about that. The first thing that comes to mind is when I was talking to uh, Whitney from passiveinvesting.com she we really address this idea of analysis paralysis and you know trying to figure out like you know that you want to make a change in your life and you you know there's something there's some pain you want to run away from and everyone's just like I want to get away from this pain and they focus on the thing they're running away from but if they don't think about what they're trying to run to they you know the thing's going to keep catching up because they, they have nothing pulling them forward where they're just, I mean, it's, there's no, there, the change is, I don't want this, but it's not, what do I want? So what really, what people really should be asking and what I should be asking myself when I, I do ask myself is what do I want and why do I want it? And like, it seems like a simple, easy question, but it's, it's really not. You got to go deeper into really what drives you, what are your values and why is this thing that you want? It's like, you don't want to go to the surface level one, but really go to like the, you know, deep down to my core, like, what is the life I'm trying to build for myself? And, you know, a life of happiness, of health, of wealth, and of, you know, ability to do what I want, what I want, and who I want to do it with. And then kind of through that lens, I'm going to be able to figure out what I should be doing now as I, as I, you know, really hone this plan. So that just mindset, it's kind of something that I've been thinking about for a while, but she gave me like a very, like, you know, detailed and powerful way of conceptualizing it which is gonna stick with me for my, the rest of my life
0: it's a very powerful concept because we all are building from somewhere and usually it's pain and when we then there's a switch that needs to happen you start somewhere let's just say you know and i what is it what are we in now like uh 20 2022? <laughs> yeah, 2022 yeah 2022 it's crazy so, anyway, so around 2011, I, I I lost most of what I had. I basically came to this country with nothing and found myself 10 years living in the U.S., basically right back where I started. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to basically break everything apart right now, and I'm going to rebuild everything from scratch again. Because I came here with nothing. I did it once. I'll just do it again. Um, and... In that experience, I built from there, but it took a couple of years, probably till around, I would say 2015, 2016, where the switch happened, where I wasn't building from a place anymore of pain, but I was building towards a place of of pleasure, of vision, of this incredible vision that I had. Um, and it's also the difference of like, you know, starting, because people are motivated either by fear or greed, right? A lot of it, pain and pleasure, essentially. Put it however you want. Um, but essentially, it's very, very true because you build, you start somewhere and you build from a place and then a switch needs, and you'll, you'll reach a plateau if you don't make that switch. And then you'll know when you're there because you'll be stuck for a little bit. And then a different sw- switch needs to happen and a different level of personal development needs to kick in and a mindset, you need a complete different rewiring of your brain because you've been motivated by fear and pain. And now all of a sudden, you're going to be motivated by pleasure and about, you know, abundance and and playing at a bigger level and chasing this vision that you have. So essentially, you know, I agree with with that. It's a pretty powerful lesson. Um, And what connects people to people is that when they share their journey of building from a certain place, that's why when you hear a lot of people's stories, they they started and they built from a place of fear, of scarcity, of pain, and that connects you to those folks because you can either relate or you cannot relate. Um, and then eventually they rise up and then they make that switch and now they're building. And to your point, what you what you said, figure out what you want that changes every year almost right or changes it should change every six months to a year for everyone especially if you've made that switch to now building towards something so it's a it's yeah it's a pretty powerful message
1: yeah definitely and it's uh I think so stick with me you know whenever I get to those those stuck points I'm gonna be like you know that's gonna kind of be like the guiding light for how I'm gonna go forward and it's um I'm excited it's gonna be fun cool Awesome. So um, any final remarks? And I'm sure people are going to want to learn more. Where can uh, they find you?
0: CashflowNinja.com. And for your um, listeners, I have a book, The 21 Best Cashflow Niches, where the number one question I got asked is, MC, what are some of the the coolest investment opportunities that have been shared on your show for six years? So I put it all together in a book. It's available at CashflowNinja.com or Amazon.com. And when you grab a copy of the book, um, your listeners, just screenshot, because most people buy stuff on their phone these days, screenshot a proof of your purchase and send it to my team at info at cashflowninja.com. And we'll give you access to a digital version of the book if you want to read it on Kindle, an audio version of the book if you just want to listen to it. And a curated library of and Ninjas discussing the niches inside of the book, so you don't have to listen to like 850 episodes, uh, and more bonus goodies. So it's available at CashflowNinja.com or on Amazon.com, and just screenshot us the proof of your purchase, and we'll give you uh, and your listeners um, access to the bonus goodies.
1: Awesome. Well, definitely encourage everyone to do that. I know I'm going to be doing that uh, as soon as possible after we get off this. And um, everyone, keep making milestones. Thanks, MC. Thank you.